Well, this is the, uh, the final sermon in this section of 1 Corinthians, uh, the section that deals with what we do and how we do it when we gather as the church to worship. Uh, and the last of the three sermons, where we've been looking at particularly the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we've covered some matters over the last few weeks that can be a cause for division. But the reason that they're in here in God's word is because we're encouraged to strive for unity that those issues will not be uh, a cause for division. What we believe about the nature of the gifts of the spirit we need to remember is not a matter of salvation. Of course it's a problem if our view of the gifts cause us to distort the gospel or distort our understanding of God or of who the Holy Spirit is and how he works. But uh, the gifts should not be a cause of division in the body. They're given so that we may be unified. So we should be willing to understand one another and our differences and what our differences are on these topics and to actually acknowledge and appreciate one another uh, for our differences. It's only when we insist on our view to the exclusion of all other views that we risk becoming this person that Paul warns us about in Titus. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Very strong words, isn't it? But it's because God values the unity of his church. I've already mentioned that uh, here in the congregation at Bethel there are a variety of views on the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, but I thought it, was, it would be important this morning that I explained a bit more of why I have the view that I have, uh, particularly on tongues, which I've expressed over the last couple of Sundays. Uh, obviously that's the view that I'll be sharing from the pulpit because I can't preach something that's against what I... Um, what I have my own convictions or conscience. Uh, our church constitution contains a statement about gifts of the Spirit. It's, I've reprinted it in the newsletter this morning. And that statement affirms that we believe the Spirit still gives the gifts to the church. But that statement is not in our doctrinal statement, it's in a separate section. It's something that we want people to know and to expect to hear from time to time from the pulpit, but we don't expect someone who's a member of our church to hold firmly to a specific view of the gifts. And it certainly wouldn't prevent us from working together with another church that has a different view on the gifts. If uh, you ever find me and find a new pastor, I, I trust that you will appoint someone who's firm on the gospel, who's firm on the authority of the Bible, who's committed to the principles of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 about the clarity of the gospel and orderliness and unity in worship. But I hope that you won't insist that he holds to a very specific, narrow view on the gifts. 
When I was a young man, I practiced what I believed at the time to be the gift of speaking in tongues. Uh, I'd been told that tongues was the evidence that I had been baptised in the Holy Spirit and that uh, if I'd had that experience, I was told that I would also then experience extra power to, to live in the Spirit, to have victory over sin, uh, to make a stand for Jesus. As I continued to study the Bible, I came to question that view that baptism in the Holy Spirit is a second experience that comes after conversion. It's clear in the Bible that anyone who has repentance and faith in Jesus has been baptised with the Holy Spirit because we can't even have faith in Jesus apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in us at first. So I had to examine my own experience and my own practice in light of the Scriptures, allowing the Scriptures and not my experience to define and direct my faith. I also came to the conclusion that my speaking in tongues was was actually my own response to the pressure that I had felt uh, to fit in with a certain group of people and my desire to have a supernatural experience. Um, But I've I've also come to a a different understanding uh, of what's meant by tongues in the book of Acts and here in 1 Corinthians. Uh, And that's the view that I've uh, I've shared already, uh, that tongues refers to human languages rather than angelic languages or as a means of communicating directly with God. Uh, The reasons for that, there are two main reasons. One is that the word that's used uh, means literally languages. Uh, Everywhere else in the New Testament and in the Greek Old Testament, as well as in the the Greek uh, non-biblical literature of the time, the word that's translated tongues refers to human languages. Uh, Tongue, I guess, is a bit of an old-fashioned English word that we use that means language. Remember the uh, hymn by Wesley. Uh, You might know this as the first verse of this hymn, but actually the original hymn has 18 verses. We're used to only singing verses 7, 8, 9, 10 and 11, I think. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my dear Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace. He was expressing there, I think, that one language isn't enough to adequately express the full glory and majesty of God. That it will only be when that great multitude stands before the throne and that multitude will represent not just every tribe and uh, people and nation, but also every language And they will sing, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Uh, This this hymn is actually a hymn about mission. Verse 8, which we often sing as the final verse, My gracious Master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the world abroad the honours of thy name. Uh, An important principle in interpreting the Bible is that unless 
the immediate context demands otherwise, we should always understand the word in its most commonly used, plainest sense. So that's why I believe that the gift of tongues is inextricably linked with the call to proclaim the gospel to every people, nation, tribe and tongue. And I believe that's why Paul uses that word because he's writing to Corinthians, Gentiles, who are those people of every nation, tribe and tongue who are hearing the gospel and proclaiming the gospel in their language. The mention of context then leads to the second reason why I hold this view. When we look at the immediate context in chapter 14, we see Paul quoting from that verse in Isaiah 28. Among all that he says about tongues, this really is the crucial point. Because we know for Paul the scriptures were his final authority. So he uses in this passage, he uses common sense, he uses reason, he uses examples from everyday life. But as he always does, he goes back to the Bible. Another really important principle of Bible interpretation is scripture interprets scripture. So if we come across a passage that seems to us a little bit unclear and we're not sure exactly what it means, we can go to other passages in the Bible that are clearer, that shed light on the passage that we're not quite sure about. And Paul's done us a favour here because he's quoted another passage that sheds light on this one. Uh, Now, it's, it's without doubt that Paul is saying that the tongues of Isaiah 28, there in verse 21 that he quotes, are the same as the tongues of Corinth. That's why he quotes this passage to help the Corinthians understand this gift that God is giving them. It's also without doubt that the tongues in Isaiah are the tongues of foreigners. It was the Jews hearing people of other nations speaking God's word in a language that they couldn't understand and so it sounded to them like a baby babbling or a drunk person babbling. So it seems to me that 1 Corinthians 14.21 is telling us that what Isaiah predicted, 700 BC, was literally taking place in the New Testament times. The Corinthians and us were part of the fulfilment of Isaiah 28. The fulfilment, the, the, the pouring out of the Spirit, which meant for some the blessing of hearing the gospel in other tongues, and for some the judgment that they could no longer understand what God was saying. Remember the day of Pentecost. There were some there who heard Peter speaking in their own language. There were others who just thought they were drunk because it sounded like they were babbling. Those who understood believed. Those who didn't showed that they were under God's judgment because of their lack of faith. So they're the two key reasons that I, um, I have that view. It can also be helpful to look at how scripture has been uh, interpreted and understood by the church through history 
and to see whether the church has handled it well or handled it badly. Uh, history isn't the definitive reason, but it uh, can also can often help us. If the church has been saying something for a long time and then, uh, then I come up with some brand new interpretation that no one's ever said before, chances are I've got it wrong if, if I'm saying something different to what Bible scholars for 2,000 years have been saying. The general consensus through church history has been that uh, tongues are foreign languages. Uh, The longest debate that happened about tongues and what tongues were went on for about a thousand years as theologians discussed it and debated and it was actually over whether the miracle of tongues was a miracle of speaking or a miracle of hearing. So like, kind of like in Pentecost, Peter was speaking, I assume, Greek or Aramaic, but people heard what he was saying in their own languages. So there was, there's been a lot of debate over that. The early Pentecostals, uh, as well as their immediate predecessors in the, at the end of the 19th century, they were actually very clear that they believed that the tongues that God had given them were uh, human languages. Some of them even packed up and they travelled to other countries because they were convicted that God had given them this gift so that they could take the gospel to other nations. There are historical accounts of some people arriving in those countries and the local people couldn't understand what they were saying and some of them returned disillusioned. But there's also reports of others who stayed and gave themselves to studying the local language and they reported, to, to quote one of the letters that was written, they reported supernatural help in acquiring languages in a remarkably short time. So it was actually it was only a little bit later that the Pentecostal leaders uh, began to teach the idea that uh, tongues are a private prayer language. Now, saying this, I'm not saying this to disparage or criticise our Pentecostal brothers or sisters. Simply to point out that we can learn lessons from history about the importance of always submitting our experience to Scripture, being prepared to humbly reassess our experiences and understand them differently, maybe being willing to change what we're doing or even to stop doing something if we are convicted by what the scriptures say. Christians aren't to be known as the people who always get it right. We're to be known as the people who are always willing to repent and change if needed. So the second half of 1 Corinthians 14 is so important then in all of this. I said last week that there are two ways in which we demonstrate the love of 1 Corinthians 13 when we gather in worship as the church. The first we saw last week was to make sure that in all of our speaking, whether it takes the form of prophecy or tongues or words of knowledge or wisdom, that we ensure we do it clearly so that people can understand what's being said So we're not obscuring the word of God and we're not obscuring the message of Christ 
crucified. The second way we show love is, as it says in verse 40, that we do all things decently and in order. See how the theological reason Paul gives for this is in verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. We see this in the character of God from the very beginning. From Genesis chapter 1, the Holy Spirit was hovering over the formlessness of the waters. Then as the Father spoke, the Son and the Spirit brought a order out of the formlessness. Creation was ordered. Creation was good. And the climax of that order that God brought to creation was the Sabbath rest. The creation as God's work of art so perfectly reflects the character of the artist that God then celebrated creation by resting, enjoying this creation that so perfectly imaged his own character. That straight away then sets the precedent for everything in creation. Order leads to rest and peace. So human beings made in God's image were commanded to observe the Sabbath, to have our lives ordered in a weekly seven-day cycle into which rest is inbuilt. We have Genesis 1 to thank for our seven-day week with a weekend built in. And you could probably argue that it's been proven through history that that pattern is the best pattern for human flourishing. So creation reflects the orderliness of its creator. And in a similar way, our worship as God's people should also reflect the orderliness of God's character. First and foremost, we should understand orderly worship as a way for us to express our love for God because we're reflecting his character, his attributes. If you attended the prayer walk last week, you would have been blessed by that opening station where we prayed through different attributes of God. We prayed through his holiness, his supremacy, his unchangeableness, his justice, his sovereignty, his love, his power, his grace, his all-knowing, his mercy. And I asked myself, oh, should all the orderliness be in there amongst the attributes? But really all of those together combined display the orderliness of God, the God who is a God of peace, not of confusion. So orderliness then is also a way for us to express our love for one another. The first part of chapter 14 focused on the content and the manner of our speaking. This part of the chapter actually emphasises the value of knowing when not to speak. Ecclesiastes 5.1-3 says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God to draw near, to listen 
is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what they are doing, that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few, for a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. Now in Solomon's day, the house of God meant the temple in Jerusalem. Today, doesn't speak of a brick and mortar building, but of the church, the living temple built from the living stones, which is us, its members. And so Paul is applying these, the wisdom of Ecclesiastes here in this passage. You may have noticed that he used three times the phrase, keep silent. So we love one another in church when we ensure that when we do speak our communication is clear and we love one another when we're willing to be silent so that others may speak, especially when they're speaking the word of God. So verse 26 contains a description and an instruction. Paul's describing what happens In Corinth, each person came to church wanting to share something, a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. This is an an instruction on how we must run our service. Notice he doesn't mention other things that we're commanded to to do. He doesn't mention prayer there, for example. It's not a, a mandate for us to have an open mic so that anyone can just come up and say their bit. He's simply describing their gathering and then he tells them that whenever they do it, whenever they do these things, they need to do it in a way that builds up the body, in a way that considers the roles and the responsibilities and the gifts of one another. So then, messages given in tongues were limited. Three people maximum, one at a time, and should only be allowed if there was a translation into the language that everyone could speak. If not, be silent. Then prophetic revelations. Also maximum of three, one by one, but only if the gift of discernment was being used to ensure that what was being said was truly God's word. That little comment in verse 32, the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets, means that prophecy wasn't an ecstatic losing control. If they were to speak one at a time and if they were to be silent when others spoke, then it meant they were in control of their speaking. So if they were causing disorder and confusion by speaking over one another, or not being prepared to listen, they couldn't use the excuse, the Holy Spirit just took over and I couldn't help myself. Verses 34 and 35 are no doubt confronting to us today. What's meant by the women should keep silent in the churches? I had a lecturer at seminary who took this verse to apply literally today 
And if a woman in, in chapel, if a woman got up to give a Bible reading, he'd stand up and he'd walk out. I could never understand though why he insisted on applying that verse today, but he seemed to ignore chapter 11 where women were allowed to pray and prophesy in church. Paul says women should be given the authority to pray and prophesy in an appropriate way. Now, prayer and prophecy obviously involve speaking, especially in the context of the gathered church where we're commanded to speak to one another, to build one another up. So clearly, Paul is not saying that women are to remain silent in every context. Paul is smart enough to know that he's not contradicting himself. He must be describing a certain way of speaking, a kind of speaking, one that verse 35 describes as shameful or inappropriate. Remember what we saw in chapter 11? That if a woman in the Corinthian context, especially if she was a slave who had had her head shaved, if she prayed or prophesied without her head covered, she dishonoured her head or shamed her head. It's the same word there. It's because she wasn't presenting herself as the free woman that she was in Christ. And she wasn't recognising the good distinction between male and female that God has designed. We saw that that was a matter of ensuring that women had freedom to participate in worship but still in a way that that distinction between male and female was preserved and celebrated. Other places in the New Testament make it clear that while women participated in worship with prayer and prophecy, the specific responsibility of teaching and oversight had been given to the men. That wasn't to take away from women the right to do something that they were capable of doing. It was more about calling the men to their solemn responsibility to take on the sometimes onerous burden of teaching and having authority. There was a a study done, I think back in the 90s, that found that out of all the different professions in the West church leaders have the highest rate of burnout. Now partly that's maybe our own fault because we don't draw the line between our ministry life and the rest of our lives and we overdo it. But it's also because there is a a mental and a spiritual toll that leadership can have on someone who's in leadership, a pastor or an elder especially when they're aware that their words and their decisions can have an impact on people's eternal destiny. So in the church, God has entrusted that responsibility to the men who he has designed in certain physical and psychological ways to be suited for that role. So men are to to provide a service to women by shouldering that burden and by doing so giving them the freedom to express God's design for them and the gifts 
that he has given them. So I think that's what verses 34 and 35 are expressing. Again, the immediate context is important. Remember, just before this are the instructions about weighing up prophecies. Weighing them up before it's accepted or taken on board by the church. That's part of the role that was entrusted with those who were teaching and overseeing the church. And so consistent with that, it was the role that the men had and that the women didn't have to worry about taking on that responsibility. So it wasn't a repressing of women, it was a stepping up of the men to serve. And there's a lot more we could say about the whole matter of gender roles in church, but it's not the main point of this chapter. We need to see that the main principle here is that of considering one another. Being willing, as with tongues, as with prophecy, to be silent in order to allow another person to speak when it's more appropriate, when it's more conducive to the order and to the building up of the church. So, prophets are to remain silent when it's not their turn. Those who speak in tongues are to remain silent when it's not their turn. Uh, The women were to remain silent when it wasn't their turn. It doesn't say it explicitly, but it's, it's implied here, isn't it, that men were to remain silent in the church if a woman was praying or prophesying. It would have been shameful for a man to speak in a way that overrode the authority that she had been given to speak in that way. As I said at the beginning, we must be always ready to submit our experience and our practices to the authority of God's word, to see his word as the final authority, which is why we conclude in these verses at the end with this call to see God's word as our final authority, to have God's word shape the way we worship. Unlike other organisations, what we do when we come together isn't determined by a democratic decision of everybody in everything, but by what the scriptures teach. Now, different churches have taken different approaches to this principle of having the scriptures guide our worship. Some do model their meetings on verse 25 or 26. So they don't have a pre-planned order of service. They simply come together, they allow people to contribute a hymn or a scripture or a word of encouragement. If you've uh, grown up or gone to a brethren church, that's the way our brethren, brothers and sisters, do that. Some churches follow the principle that only those explicitly commanded in the Bible should be done. So they sing without musical instruments. And they may only sing psalms and hymns and songs directly from Scripture. Or others, other churches, like our church, say that we should certainly do what's commanded, but we have freedom in things that are not explicitly 
prohibited and things that don't take away from what's commanded. That means that from time to time we may tweak or make a change in the way that we do our service or how we do it in order to bring it more in line with what we believe the Bible is saying or in a way that's more helpful for building up the church. For example, there's no scriptural command to have a talk especially for children. But we believe it's a good thing to do because we want the children to know that they're part of the body. Or you may have noticed that we've been having slightly fewer songs recently in our services. That's because we want to ensure that with the addition to the children's talk on non-communion Sundays that we still have time for prayer because that's something we're commanded to do. Now sometimes people may change church because there's something about the Sunday service that they don't like. Maybe you've come to this church for that reason. Maybe you're thinking of leaving for that reason. Maybe you think there are things that we should change or add or remove from our service. The reality is I'll I'll actually only ever be able to attend a church service that's exactly how I like it when I'm the one running it and I'm I'm the only one who's attending it. Our gatherings aren't about making everyone happy but enabling us to love one another in obedience to what Jesus has commanded. There are some things we may not enjoy in a service but they're in place because they're good for the soul. It might be difficult participating in corporate prayer but we're called to approach the throne of grace both as individuals and as a body. We may not feel anything extra spiritual when we take communion but we're told it's an important thing to do to have Christ crucified presented before us on a regular basis. The best thing for our soul is to learn by grace to bear with one another in love, to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us, to forgive one another when needed, to spur one another on to love, to display Christ in our words and our actions. So we'll finish with this word of encouragement from Hebrews chapter 10. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray.